Welcome to Counter Apologetics. to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be discussing abiogenesis. It's widely accepted that the biological diversity we witness is explained by evolution by natural selection. This is separate, however, from abiogenesis, the initial appearance of life. The origin of life is a separate issue from the origin of species. Contrary to what most humans throughout history have supposed, and contrary to what some still believe today, these are two separate problems. Creatures in their current form didn't spontaneously organize, by natural or supernatural means. Rather, something relatively simple emerged, and over time, simplicity was transformed into complexity, by natural selection. One reason we know this is that all life on Earth is related. Humans are more closely related to bonobos than to gorillas, more related to gorillas than to dogs, more related to dogs than bananas. The relatedness of all life on Earth is a fact that needs explaining, and common descent is the most natural explanation when we're considering what looks like a branching family tree. So central to evolutionary biology is the idea that all life evolved from a single, very simple, common ancestor. And simple is relative. Bacteria and archaea are simple compared to humans, hawks, and honeybees, but they're very complex compared to the inorganic structures that preceded them. That's why abiogenesis is a problem. It's not clear how to make the transition from inorganic matter to organic matter, from chemistry to biology. So how did life begin? The truth is that nobody knows for sure, but it should be restated that this has no bearing on whether evolution by natural selection is how that life developed and changed after it appeared. Abiogenesis is the process by which replicating, metabolizing matter, emerged from matter that wasn't doing those things. Scientists have plenty of ideas about how this could have happened, but unlike religious apologists who want to give God the credit, scientists aren't willing to come out and say they know how it happened without more evidence and discussion. Creationists, or whatever they want to call themselves, are happy to just shove God in that gap. We're talking about abiogenesis on an atheist podcast because some people think God did it is the final word on the matter. Carbon-based molecules that can metabolize and replicate came about because God stuck his divine appendage into the physical world and rearranged some molecules at some point along the way, and that's how we made the transition from chemistry to biochemistry. The reason some are tempted to invoke God here is because this is a genuine gap in our knowledge. But don't let gap give you the wrong idea. Scientists have offered up many plausible hypotheses. There's just no consensus because the evidence is scant and ambiguous which comes with the territory. We're talking about chemical events that took place more than 4 billion years ago on an Earth that barely resembles the conditions we observe today. What kind of decisive evidence would you expect? There's always going to be a level of speculation inherent to this particular discussion that's greater than the amount of speculation that would be tolerated in other areas of biology or chemistry. Unfortunately, it's unavoidable in this case. Even so, the gap isn't quite as gappy as many seem to think. In 1952, Stanley Miller and Harold Urey conducted a famous experiment that shed light on the origins of life. And remember, life is a label that we attach to certain kinds of processes, 
not some kind of substance that animates matter. There is no Elan Vital that possesses collections of physical stuff. There's a smooth gradient of change from chemistry to biology, and studying the origin of life involves trying to figure out how we ascend that smooth gradient by unguided natural processes, complex bits of matter following the laws of physics. Miller and Urey took a flask of simple gases, hydrogen, water, ammonia, and methane, and added electricity, which is in abundant supply on the ocean floor. In a short time, this produced amino acids, which are crucial building blocks of life. Today, we don't think Miller and Urey accurately modeled the conditions of the early Earth. Nonetheless, they demonstrated something interesting and important. It's pretty easy to generate amino acids. The same is true of hydrocarbon chains. Creationists love to jump on problems with the Miller-Urey experiment, all of which were first pointed out by scientists, by the way. But as long as we properly understand their experiment as showing that amino acids, which play a crucial role in the chemistry of life, actually come pretty cheap, then there's not much to criticize. If creationists insist on not getting the point here, we can appeal to other examples that are just as effective, if not more so. At this point, it's well documented that amino acids form naturally on asteroids and meteorites, surprisingly enough. This is from NASA.gov, quote, Researchers believe that the parent asteroids of these meteorites were heated to high temperatures by collisions or the decay of radioactive elements. As the asteroid cooled, reactions could have happened on mineral surfaces utilizing gas trapped inside small pores on the asteroid. Water, which is two hydrogen atoms bound to an oxygen atom, in liquid form is considered a critical ingredient for life. With these special reactions, all that's needed is hydrogen, carbon monoxide, and nitrogen as gases, which are all very common in space. You can begin making some prebiotic components of life very early, before you have liquid water. End quote. Whatever role meteorites played in the formation of life on Earth, this is an interesting data point. Life's ingredients are common. The same holds true for the more fundamental ingredients of life. All organisms are built from the same six basic elemental ingredients, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, and sulfur. All of those, with the exception of phosphorus, fall within the 10 most common elements in the universe. Life's ingredients are not exactly hard to come by. that we really only need two special processes to get abiogenesis, metabolism and replication with variation. Those are the two main ingredients. To explain abiogenesis, we need to explain how a collection of matter could take in energy from its environment, and how it could make imperfect copies of itself, passing on its basic form. Once we have metabolism and replication with variation, natural selection is off to the races. Once there is variation within a population of replicators, differential success inevitably follows. Add time, and you can explain the diversity of life. Creationists love to mystify the issue, but in truth, once we've explained metabolism and replication, we've essentially explained the transition to life from non-living matter. Matter first writhed when it could metabolize and replicate. So which came first? Michael Russell, a geochemist at NASA's JPL, is a metabolism firster, 
He thinks the crucial step was the appearance of a complex of chemical reactions that take advantage of free energy, allowing it to replicate. The replication firsters think energy sources were relatively abundant, and the crucial step was the ability to make crude copies of oneself. Obviously, they're both necessary steps, and no one knows for sure which came first, even though there are plenty of plausible ideas about how each got started naturally. As John Carroll puts it in the big picture, quote, There is no reason to think that we won't be able to figure out how life started. No serious scientist working on the origin of life, even those who are personally religious, points to some particular process and says, here is the step we need to invoke the presence of a non-physical life force, or some element of supernatural intervention. There is a strong conviction that understanding abiogenesis is a matter of solving puzzles within the known laws of nature, not calling for help from outside of them. This conviction comes from the incredible historical track record that science has established. While there are many questions about life's origin that science hasn't answered, there are a large number that it has, any one of which could have been a problem that science all by itself was unable to address. Recall Immanuel Kant's confident proclamation that there will never be a Newton for a blade of grass. End quote. A God of the Gaps argument emphasizes the present inability of science to explain a certain phenomenon, in this case, abiogenesis. I think Carroll's insight is important because atheists are sometimes accused of naturalism of the gaps, but these two are not mere images of one another. God of the Gaps arguments take the following form. 1. Science cannot, at present, explain this phenomenon. 2. Theism does explain this phenomenon. 3. Therefore, this phenomenon is more likely on the assumption that God exists than on the assumption God does not exist. If science's current inability to explain a phenomenon is being made reference to, it's a God of the Gaps argument. So-called naturalism of the Gaps works quite differently. As you heard from Carroll, it's the amazing historical track record of science that creates the conviction that we don't need to call for help outside nature to solve a puzzle. Naturalists are just taking note of a pattern a pattern that's pretty hard to miss. How many times does this have to happen before we stop making the same mistake? And if you don't want to hear it from me, take it from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Quote, How wrong it is to use God as a stopgap for the incompleteness of our knowledge, for the frontiers of knowledge are inevitably being pushed back further and further. We should find God in what we do know, not in what we don't. End quote. Even a superficial look into abiogenesis research doesn't at all leave the impression that there's an unconquerable gap in our knowledge. There's a relative lack of certainty, but one could spend a lifetime reading about clay, RNA, alkaline hydrothermal vents deep beneath the surface, and the interdisciplinary effort generally that is abiogenesis research. Geology, chemistry, biology, astrophysics, and other fields of study are all necessary for one to fully appreciate the ideas that have been put forth which all have some degree of empirical support. These ideas are not purely speculative. They're just hard but not impossible to test. The thesis of this episode is that the mystery of abiogenesis is not a threat to naturalism. It's not as if you're required to believe the equivalent of a tornado junkyard 747 scenario to be a naturalist. 
Life is amazing, but it's not so amazing that it couldn't have emerged through incremental steps, no one of which requires an intelligent designer. Even though abiogenesis seems like less of an intractable problem when you break it down to its component parts, many still come away with the wrong idea. There's a naive understanding of what scientists are saying when they try to explain the origins of life that falls under the Junkyard 747 view of abiogenesis. The astrophysicist Fred Hoyle, in attempting to quantify the improbability of life assembling itself, came up with the famous analogy that's been haunting us ever since. He calculated the number of ways atoms in a cell could possibly be arranged, and out came the astronomically improbable figure of 1 in 10 to the 40,000. According to Hoyle, those were the odds of a biological structure like a cell being generated spontaneously. The problem is that Hoyle's idea of what is being proposed is way off. Nobody working on the problem thinks that the original biological structures came about through random fluctuations of particles until finally the right one popped out. Hoyle's idea of how it happened is nothing like how actual abiogenesis researchers think it happened. Even if there are improbable events along the way, there's still a smooth gradient of gradual change, and we can discover the kinds of reactions and processes that had to occur to facilitate that gradual change. This is where some push back reminding us that abiogenesis and evolution are two different issues. Climbing Mount Improbable is a great analogy for the gradualism driven by natural selection, but we're talking about abiogenesis. Natural selection can explain the origin of species, but it's usually not invoked to explain the origin of life. It's how life changes, not how life got here. But Richard Dawkins argued in The Selfish Gene that a broader conception of natural selection can help us explain abiogenesis too. I want to read this longer passage because the first time I read it, it caused me to view the problem with fresh eyes. I had a much deeper appreciation of the fact that matter and biological matter are not truly distinct. The evolution of biological matter was continuous with the evolution of matter. We ordinarily limit our application of natural selection to the former, but it can play a role in explaining the emergence of a self-sustaining, metabolizing system that can make crude copies of itself. Quote, Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection is satisfying because it shows us a way in which simplicity could change into complexity, how unordered atoms could group themselves into ever more complex patterns until they ended up manufacturing people. I will try to explain the great theory in a way more general than is customary. Darwin's survival of the fittest is really a special case of a more general law of survival of the stable. The universe is populated by stable things. A stable thing is a collection of atoms that is permanent enough or common enough to deserve a name. It may be a unique collection of atoms, such as the Matterhorn, that lasts long enough to be worth naming. Or it may be a class of entities, such as raindrops, that come into existence at a sufficiently high rate to deserve a collective name even if any one of them is short-lived. The things that we see around us, in which we think of as needing explanations, rocks, galaxies, ocean waves, are all, to a greater or lesser extent, stable patterns of atoms. In the sun, the simplest atoms of all, hydrogen atoms, are fusing to form helium atoms, because in the conditions that prevail there, the helium configuration is more stable. Other, even more complex atoms are being formed in stars all over the universe. The point that is relevant here is that, before the coming of life on Earth, some rudimentary evolution of molecules could have occurred by ordinary processes of physics and chemistry. 
there's no need to think of design or purpose or directedness. If a group of atoms in the presence of energy falls into a stable pattern, it will tend to stay that way. The earliest form of natural selection was simply a selection of stable forms and a rejection of unstable ones. There is no mystery about this. It had to happen by definition. End quote. Recall that the Miller-Urey experiment demonstrated that amino acids organize naturally when energy is added to a flask containing water, carbon dioxide, methane, and ammonia. That is the most stable configuration of those ingredients in those conditions. Quote, At some point a particularly remarkable molecule was formed by accident. We will call it the replicator. It may not necessarily have been the biggest or the most complex molecule around, but it had the extraordinary property of being able to create copies of itself. This may seem like a very unlikely sort of accident to happen. So it was. It was exceedingly improbable. In the lifetime of a man, things that are that improbable can be treated for practical purposes as impossible. That's why you'll never win a big prize on the football pools. But in our human estimates of what is probable and what is not, we are not used to dealing in hundreds of millions of years. If you filled in pools coupons every week for a hundred million years, you would very likely win several jackpots. Actually, a molecule that makes copies of itself is not as difficult to imagine as it seems at first, and it only had to arise once. End quote. Some creationists have insisted that the origin of life is unique because of a sort of chicken and egg problem. You need ribosomes to make ribosomes, you need proteins to make proteins, etc. Something must have kicked this process off, and it couldn't have been anything less than a fully functional version of the process we're trying to explain. Gradualism can't explain complex biological structures when every part needs to be perfectly in place for the system to work. In other words, some biological structures are irreducibly complex. If this is true, even with survival of the stable, we're right back in the junkyard, waiting for the right tornado to come along. What explains these apparently irreducibly complex systems is exaptation, where existing structures are repurposed. Neither abiogenesis nor evolution were ever working with a blank slate. Exaptation is the process by which nature retools existing structures for new functions, and as biologist Nathan Lentz puts it, is possibly the most common mechanism that leads to the false impression of irreducible complexity. Neither abiogenesis nor evolution were ever working with a blank slate. They both had raw materials to work with, structures which had arisen for reasons unrelated to their role in abiogenesis or evolution. This exceptive logic can apply whether we're in no man's land between chemistry and biochemistry, or fully in the realm of biology. A system's current function does not necessarily reflect its historical origin. And that's because evolution is never working with a blank slate, whether we're talking about biological evolution or the chemical evolution that preceded it.
non-life apart from God's direct intervention is a fairy tale. But despite that obvious truth, evolutionists continue to build their supposedly scientific case on a foundation that virtually rules out everything that follows after it. Evolution teaches that energy, such as lightning or heat, plus matter, can occasionally create new life. Yet our entire food industry rests on the fact that this can never happen. If we examine a jar of peanut butter, it contains matter and is exposed to light and heat. But we never find new life inside unless an outside life contaminates it. If the theory of evolution was viable, then I should, occasionally, by subjecting this to energy, end up having new life. Now we go down to the store, and um, if, if I open this jar of peanut butter, maybe not often, but on some occasion, I should find new life inside. And so, when we open the jar of peanut butter, we look in there, there's no new life. So there are more or less sophisticated versions of this sort of objection from creationists. But it's not at all unreasonable to ask, why doesn't new life arise all the time? For us to be here, it only had to happen once. Sure. But why wouldn't life arise more than once? That is, unless the emergence of life is as miraculous as apologists make it out to be. Naturalists are saying it wasn't a miracle, yet it only seems to have happened once in four billion years. Think about common ancestry the relatedness of all life on Earth. Why aren't there different branches of life, each with a unique progenitor that arose independently? If abiogenesis is not all that improbable of an event, why don't we see life emerge all the time? After all, we know the conditions on Earth are conducive to life. This is an objection apologists have leveled, sometimes involving peanut butter for some reason. The answer is that if new life arose, it would almost immediately get eaten by the life that's already here. Here's the thing. We don't actually know that the emergence of new life on Earth isn't common. It probably does happen all the time. The problem is that any microscopic evidence disappears before it has the chance to proliferate. To quote Dawkins, Nowadays, large organic molecules would not last long enough to be noticed. They would be quickly absorbed and broken down by bacteria or other living creatures. But bacteria and the rest of us are latecomers. And in those days, large organic molecules could drift unmolested through the thickening broth. End quote. Actually, Darwin anticipated this in a famous letter written in 1871. Quote, but if, and oh what a big if, we could conceive in some warm little pond with all sorts of ammonia and phosphoric salts, light, heat, electricity, etc. present, that a protein compound was chemically formed, ready to undergo still more complex changes. At the present day, such matter would be instantly devoured or absorbed, which would not have been the case before living creatures were formed. End quote. Creationists have found a new way to speak about abiogenesis and evolution that gives a fresh veneer of credibility to their pseudoscience. The language of information. It's fine to say that something contains information, but we shouldn't get carried away with metaphorical descriptions like that. 
DNA doesn't literally contain a substance or a thing called information. But if you listen to creationists like Stephen Meyer, William Dembski, or any number of others, you'll occasionally get the impression that certain types of information are something over and above matter, something more than a mere arrangement of physical stuff. The problem here is defining information. Can we get a working definition of information that doesn't beg the question entirely? When intelligent design proponents talk about information, it often sounds like they're defining certain types of information as information that came from an intelligent designer. Of course, to say that there is such a type of information, distinct from all other types, and that this type of information is present in DNA, is quite a burden, and one that can't be met by appealing to complexity and improbability alone. The reason is that natural selection can explain how we can climb Mount Improbable and look over the edge, in full recognition of how complex and improbable biological structures like a genome appear when we only look at the end result. Evolution by natural selection shows us how simplicity can change into complexity, how unordered matter can be organized into beautifully elegant and complex biological processes. Or to put it another way, natural selection shows us how information can be produced without a designer. It should be noted that there is no consensus about the exact nature of information to begin with. The Stanford Encyclopedia reads, quote, The lack of preciseness and the universal usefulness of the term information go hand in hand. End quote. There are different types of information, and these categorizations are useful. But I think many lose sight of the fact that information is just a way of talking about physical processes. It's a way of describing non-randomness in collections of matter. There's not a metaphysical ingredient called information, which is what it sounds like many creationists are imagining. It sounds like they're adding pixie dust on top of the chemicals that constitute your genome. I think it would be a mistake to treat this abstraction, information, as an extra entity of any sort with mysterious relations to the physical domain. Rather, it's a useful way of talking about collections of matter. It's a way of describing the arrangement of stable things. It's also a relatively new way of imagining the world. The idea seems to have captured the imagination of many scientists, probably since it allows us to talk about physical processes in an abstract, idealized way, but it's not a magical ingredient that's added to ordinary matter, over and above the arrangement of physical material, which is what some creationists seem to think. In fact, the way many ID proponents speak of information is often suspiciously similar to Alain Vitel. They've replaced life force with life information to science it up a bit. This is what I call creationist informationism. To them, what separates life from non-life is this magical ingredient, call it life information, that couldn't have arisen naturalistically. Of course, life is a label that we attach to certain kinds of processes, not some kind of extra substance that possesses collections of matter. I think it's quite accurate to say that creationist informationism is the modern Alain Vitel. The animating life force has been replaced by animating life information. consider this last part an insignificant footnote to the conversation on abiogenesis, and perhaps their attitude is justified, 
But I feel obligated to mention that there are less conventional naturalistic options on the market that are taken seriously. Thomas Nagel, an atheist, sketched out what he calls natural teleology in his 2012 book, Mind and Cosmos. Natural teleology aims to provide a framework that could lead to a naturalistic, rationally intelligible explanation of the jump from chemistry to biology, without a huge appeal to randomness at any point in the process. Most of the conventional stories of abiogenesis today involve wildly improbable events, which would be fine were it not for the fact that life formed on Earth very quickly. Once it was possible for life to form on Earth without being immediately killed by unforgiving conditions, life emerged relatively quickly. The Earth is 4.54 billion years old. When did life first emerge? Well, no one knows for sure, but the estimate keeps getting pushed back. The upper estimate used to be 3.5 to 3.7 billion years ago, but now that's the lower estimate. That's the direction of the drift. A 2017 paper, published in the journal Nature, pushed the estimate to 4.28 billion years ago. A 2018 paper in Nature pushed it to 4.5 billion years ago. So, according to some scientists, life emerged 4.5 billion years ago, with the Earth forming 4.54 billion years ago. That's 40 million years, compared to nearly a billion, between the formation of Earth and the emergence of life. And it's not as if we get each and every one of those 40 million years. Remember, it wasn't possible for life to exist in the harsh conditions of the newly formed Earth. So it's not as if chance had 40 million years to work with. It wasn't possible for life to emerge for a long time after the formation of the Earth. Again, almost as soon as it was possible for life to emerge, it did. This is very strange. Scientists have been happy to appeal to deep time to help explain abiogenesis, since it would allow for vanishingly improbable events. Of course, theists are happy to say it was an intelligent designer, but Nagel doesn't like either of those answers. He takes leaning so heavily on randomness, for such crucial parts of the story, to be a cop-out, and one that loses plausibility every time that estimate gets pushed back. Natural teleology is his very speculative alternative to explain the self-organization and development of complexity that took place anywhere from a few million to a few hundred thousand years after it was possible for abiogenesis to occur. Shouldn't we want an explanation that doesn't render the emergence of life completely surprising? A necessary component of any good explanation is that it makes things clear and reasonable. Perhaps appealing to chance and randomness as many do for abiogenesis will someday be seen as analogous to those centuries ago who, ignorant of evolution by natural selection, believed that flies, mice, and other creatures were spontaneously generated from piles of garbage. Ensure randomness can explain improbable configurations of molecules given enough time, but there's no question that our amount of time is shrinking. We wouldn't be having this conversation if chance had a billion years to work with. We used to think it did. And who knows, maybe a few hundred thousand or a few million years would be sufficient, but I think any rational person should be open to the possibility of novel forces at work here, since we haven't exhausted the naturalistic options, and it's unclear at this time just how surprising it is that life emerged as soon as it did. If by chance you'd be interested in getting more in the weeds about the different camps of abiogenesis researchers, the metabolism firsters versus the replication firsters, the likely conditions under which different ideas would be plausible, all the different hypotheses about how life first emerged on Earth, 
I've linked a few resources in the show notes. Abiogenesis research is an interdisciplinary effort, so the literature can be daunting, but the thesis of this episode is easier to understand. Abiogenesis is not a threat to naturalism. You're not required to believe the equivalent of a tornado junkyard 747 scenario to be a naturalist. There's no good reason to think that the component parts of life couldn't have emerged through incremental steps, none of which require an intelligent designer. Okay, I have a few new patrons to thank. Stephen Lochner, Ted Kemp, Michael Behe fanboy lover, and Luis Fernando Rodriguez. Thank you, Stephen, Ted, Michael Behe fanboy lover, and Louise. And of course, let me thank my patron Hall of Fame, Jesta, Phil Stillwell, Richard Crossan, Pre Nifty, and Rory B. Murkowski. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com slash counter where you can get early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon but you're dying for God to fill your gap, you can follow our social media on Twitter and Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. You can also subscribe to and leave a review of our sister show, Walden Pod. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time.